You're listening to the Private Practice Workshop Podcast. I'm your host, John Clark, helping you build a better business without all the overwhelm. Man, almost uh, made it through that one without stuttering (laughs) or losing my place. I'm glad you're here with me today. Like I said, uh, you're going to get some more regular content now as we find our footing again and um, get ready for the launch of both of our programs, Fully Booked and Business Made Human. Opening um, in October, we open just twice a year. Uh, Now is the time to join either or even both of those programs if you really want to see big growth in your business um, moving forward and if you want to be a part of uh, an amazing community. So um, that being said, um, today I'm sitting down with Dr. Natalie Edmond uh, talking about how to become an anti-racist organization. She's committed a lot of her life and work to doing this work and I think you're going to really enjoy our conversation. Now, what I want to say is that um, man, I I am just committed to doing this work myself, um, doing this anti-racism work myself. A big blind spot for me, honestly, has been um, um, as Black Lives Matter has um, uh, caught more attention over the past few months, um, a big blind spot for me has been feeling like I've done a lot on my part. I worked for worked in agencies for a long time. I worked in juvenile justice for a long time. Um, I did uh, some kind of um, internal anti-racism uh, training and work um, when I was uh, uh, still living in Virginia, things like that. And um, I just, uh, I, I don't know why, I just haven't stepped up in the way that I should. I also haven't stepped up in a way of really um, promoting diversity within this business, within Private Practice Workshop, in our content, in our marketing, in the guest experts that we have come speak. And that's just a major blind spot um, that I'm dealing with, and this is one way I'm dealing with it. So it doesn't mean I'm going to get it all right, but it does mean that I know I have a whole lot of privilege on this end, and I really need to be careful and mindful with that. So uh, I'm doing my best. As always, I invite your uh, feedback and your thoughts. I want to keep doing a good job and using my platform and uh, being a good leader for therapists. So I'm working on it. Um, so that there's that. Um, all right, so let's get into the conversation with Natalie. Without further ado, let's dive in. Dr. Natalie Edmond is on the show with me today. She's a licensed clinical psychologist and yoga teacher. Uh, She owns a group practice in New Jersey and has an anti-racism consultation business. Natalie, thanks for being on the show. How's it going? Good. Thanks so much for inviting me, John. I'm really excited to talk to you about more of the work that I'm doing. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Um, Kind of a, a, I don't know if I mentioned this before, but I know you're in New Jersey What's the town exactly? Uh, my practice is in Ewing, New Jersey, so it's between okay. Princeton and Trenton. Yeah. Okay, so I have um, family in Pennington. Oh yeah, that's and, where I live. Okay. Oh, okay. Wow, that's really small world. <laughs> Most people really have is. not heard of Pennington <laughs> unless you yeah. live there or even. Yeah. Uh, and then my yeah my uncle works in Princeton, so um, over the years I would always go and visit him at work, and then um, and then go walk around the campus and just be in awe of how beautiful it is. Right. It's a really, really beautiful place. And um, it really is. obviously a special school. But anyway, so I'm familiar with that, 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 um, that part of your world. That's great. Yeah, I just stopped working at Princeton University. I was working there part-time the last five years. I just stopped the beginning of um, June just to dive deeper into my anti-racism work. Amazing. Were you doing some of the anti-racism work in the counseling center there as well? Or what kind of work? were you doing on the campus besides counseling? Uh, I was doing a lot. uh, I was coordinating their mind-body team. uh, So a lot of like, how do we bring mindfulness and more embodied work onto the campus as well as um, I was doing a lot of um, like training of uh, future psychologists there as well. And anti-racism stuff came up a lot just in my individual counseling with a lot of uh, BIPOC students. So a lot Mm -hmm. of students who were lower socioeconomic status, who weren't used to kind of the Princeton culture or Mm -hmm. who are um, just underrepresented, just the struggles that they have in navigating those predominantly white spaces. Mm -hmm. 
So, um, and how long were you doing that work? Uh, I was there for five years. Okay. Yeah. And so you were, you're at Princeton for five years and uh, growing your practice at the same time and right. growing it into a group practice at the same time and doing the anti-racism uh, consulting and, and that work uh, almost as part of your practice, but really is kind of like a separate kind of like under your personal brand, I'm, we might say. Yeah, so I w- was a hospital administrator for, for many years, director of a women's trauma program, and then five years ago left that and decided I wanted to branch out into private practice. So I went to work at Princeton part-time. And um, so I did solo practice for four years. And then last summer or last spring, I decided I wanted to really grow because there was such a need. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when I built my private practice, um, I really was intentional about where I decided to set up shop. And so I really wanted to serve uh, a more ethnically diverse clientele. I had been part of a group practice that served uh, in Pennington, actually, that served pre- predominantly white clients. And um, mm-hmm. I was really hungry as a, as a Black psychologist um, to really serve more people who look like me. And so I picked a town over Ewing that is much more ethnically diverse and mm-hmm. has a broader range of of clientele. And I was also knew that I had to probably decide to take insurance if I wanted to make it more accessible. So I joined one insurance panel and I was amazed that I've worked part-time in a group practice in Pennington for nine years. And I saw more black clients in two months in my private practice than in nine years. And so that was like startling to me that it wasn't that they didn't want therapy. It was that where I was located and the fact that I, that practice didn't take insurance, I wasn't going to see those clients. Mm-hmm. That's incredible. So um, location and accessibility um, or access to services um, are huge. Did you, did you just have a sense that, um, you know, opening the practice in the other location would result in a more diverse caseload? Did you actually look at numbers like census numbers in terms of the area? Uh, I wouldn't even say that I was that precise. I looked okay. more about um, what was the makeup of the town. And so it just knew that from a numbers perspective, uh, the demographics are almost like the exact opposite. And so I just figured it would draw more people. Um, and Ewing is interesting because it's very close to the state capital of New Jersey, which is Trenton. And so there are a lot of state agencies around there. And so I picked an insurance company that was like the most popular insurance company that, and so just that, a lot of state employees, people working at local universities. So it just drew a lot of people. Um, and then on top of that, uh, I picked a building that had a lot of foot traffic in it. So people just would come to see the dentist. They would come to see the mm-hmm. primary care doctor and they would see my name and, and, and build connections that way. And tell, tell folks the, the name of your practice as well, because that, that communicates something. Yeah, so last summer when I expanded to a group practice, I named it Mindful and Multicultural Counseling. Before that, it had just been my own name. And so I really wanted to really lift up mindfulness with something important value, but also multicultural. And um, and so then all my marketing, my website, everything was cent- was specifically saying I'm centering um, people of color, I'm self- um, centering the LGBTQ population, I'm centering um, people who tend to be marginalized. And it was just very intentional. And I remember having initial fears, like, are you going to be so specific and obvious? But Mm -hmm. I said, I really want to, that's who I want to center. And I had been turning away clients for so long that I really wanted to then hire clinicians who could fit that value. Um, So it's been an interesting journey in terms of one, um, I'm very explicit of what I'm trying to center, that it's going to be primarily insurance-based And so it kind of weeds out the people who aren't interested in that. Um, And also I talk about um, that I want to offer mentoring and supervision and, Mm -hmm. and that there's going to be some required reading. So I have all my clinicians, um, regardless of their uh, ethnicity or racial identity, read Waking Up White by Debbie Irving and Mindful of Race by Ruth King. And Mm -hmm. we talk about it in staff meetings and group supervision and even the way that I run meetings or um, run my practice, I try to have some anti-racist components to it as well. Was, was all of this, um, did you sit down and kind of create this vision before you started doing it? Or did it 
was it that you just kind of started doing it or even like the books, for instance, um, uh, did you just kind of start doing it as part of um, your, your overall focus or did you sit down and say, this is the kind of practice I want. I want there to be this kind of focus. There's going to be these kind of real focus on training uh, around diversity and uh, multiculturalism. What, what was that process like? I think when I did my solo practice, I wasn't that intentional. I was just yeah. like, I'm just going to put my name up and whoever's going to come is going to come. But what I found pretty quickly was that I was attracting a certain kind of client. And so, um, and a client that I didn't even necessarily know existed. So I was attracting a lot of professional um, clients who either identified as LGB or trans. Mm -hmm. I was attracting a lot of those who identified both as, let's say, a person of color as well as another marginalized group. Um, and then I was, you know, attracting people who um, had less resources as well. And so I was like, wow, there's just really a need and not enough people either who are in the town. Cause mm -hmm. I mean, if you go a town or two over, it's oversaturated with clinicians. Um, yeah. And so some of it is about just people want to go to maybe therapy in the town they work or live in and mm -hmm. not have to travel 20 or 30 minutes. So I think part of it is that, but also I was doing trauma informed therapy. I was offering mindfulness and yoga, um, and I was really, um, you know, inviting people to talk about issues of race and issues of marginal marginalization. Mm -hmm. And I think it helped that I, I looked, you know, as a, a person of color. And so that made it less stigmatizing to a lot of people. But I also find that um, uh, Black, Indigenous, and people of color, like, that they don't mind working with someone who is white as long as they get it. Right. As long as because I, I hear a lot of clients talk about there's a shorthand when you work with someone who identifies like you, like there's mm -hmm. something you don't even have to communicate. Mm -hmm. um, but I, what I heard a lot of clients say is that even with white clinicians is that as there sometimes it feels like it wasn't comfortable to talk about issues of race. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to be very clear. So I did. For, so when I expanded to my group practice, I did write like a a vision statement, a mission state, mm -hmm. like what are my values? And I actually gave it to prospective clinicians. Like right. this is what I'm looking for. And this way people could mm -hmm. buy into it. So making it super explicit is a big part of it. Location, accessibility, right? In terms of um, private pay versus insurance. And um, so but going back to the, the, identity piece or uh, knowing that let's say if my my therapist looks like me there therefore they must understand to some degree um, my my position my challenges that are related to that identity how do you balance that with um, I guess the bigger picture of empathy right or if a client is going through um, I don't know let's say they've lost a parent and we haven't lost a parent right and then the counselor's role is in part to practice empathy to imagine what it must be like to lose a parent, right. Mm -hmm. To, to practice accurate empathy, et cetera. Um, Cause there's that, that dilemma as well as of your therapist can't possibly have gone through everything you've gone through in order to kind right. of get you and be effective with you. And yet if there is an identity piece, right. Or let's say if it's a process of being a person of color um, on one hand, I can't get that from an experiential point of view. I can only get that through, hearing your experience, resonating with your experience, right? I don't know right. what my question was, but something yeah. in there. Well, well, it's interesting when I hear you say that, I think about two things. One is that just because I look like you doesn't mean I get it. And it doesn't mm -hmm. even mean that I'm anti-racist, mm -hmm. right? Because I've heard, I've heard plenty of, um, uh, let's say, Black identifying clients who go see a Black identifying clinician who they don't feel is supportive or empathize or is validating. And yeah. so... So I think it's like the identity may be like the assumed likeness um, or affinity is like an initial barrier that's down, but then you still need to have skill and empathy and a certain lens. But what's interesting, I think in my practice is that even though maybe like, so I have a team of eight and maybe half of us identify as um, black indigenous or a person of color and the other half are white identifying and uh, but those clinicians are, I would say, have a really high retention rate, even if like, even with their, um, mm -hmm. their clients that are black or Latinx. So mm -hmm. I think there's something about the ways in which that they're thinking about things 
and the ways in which they're able to hold the space that those clients feel affirmed. And, the, and I've worked with um, those clinicians around like discomfort that we often have talking about race yeah. or talking about identity or sexuality, like the yeah. taboo topics that we don't necessarily learn growing up how to talk about in comfortable yeah. ways. So uh, something that I was kind of taught in graduate school was, was um, when I am working with a client um, uh, with a different racial or ethnic uh, background is to basically take that step to invite them into a conversation about it, right? Um, and at least kind of be the one to open that door for the client and say, listen, I want to just um, like call attention to the fact that you know, this is a difference that we share. What's that like for you? Do, do you feel like that's a, a good uh, kind of practice in general? I think it's a great entry point and I think it's not enough, right? Because mm-hmm. I think um, I think that many clinicians do do that and, and then it, it it definitely signals that I get that we we've had different experiences. Mm-hmm. And so it says kind of it's on the table. And yet, I, if I think about what's been going on in the last maybe six months or so um, mm-hmm. in the United States around uh, start, maybe like starting with the murder of George Floyd and then like all the events related to Black Lives Matter movement that's gone on since is that a sense of perhaps uh, the collective grief and rage that's been accumulating over, you know, generations. And so mm-hmm. how, do, how does one talk about that? and understand all the different ways that might weave in. Um, that, you know, I think about like some of the value as a therapist is how do we bring to light things that the client may not have been thinking about or may not have made that connection. Mm-hmm. And so I think part of anti-racism as like a clinical lens is recognizing all the ways in which white supremacy and like our conditioning mm-hmm. impacts our, you know, productivity, our striving, our difficulty with rest, our body image. So I think it goes deeper because it's like weaved into so much stuff that I think even impacts white identifying people in terms of, you know, so many of our clients who have difficulty with rest and it's always what's the next achievement and uh, what will, mm-hmm. you know, the more money and like, there's never, I'm never enough. And, um, and I think that, that kind of mentality also is yeah. part of kind of anti-racism work. So you uh, did some some training with both of our mastermind groups around this stuff and um, kind of becoming an anti-racist organization, even if you're a solo practice of one, certainly right. <laughs> applicable. Um, but part of what you talked about in that kind of um, chart of white supremacy and the more covert ways was perfectionism. That was yeah. something that I was really surprised to see on there. Yeah. Can you say more about why that's a factor? Yeah. So what I love about like, at least the anti-racism training that I've been associated with is that mm-hmm. um, there's overt racism and then there's covert racism, as you mentioned, right? And I think covert um, happens every day, right? When we mm-hmm. think about microaggressions, right? They're like the everyday little slights that happen to individuals based on various different identities. Yeah. And so perfectionism is like a symptom of white supremacy or a value of white supremacy as is like uh, black and white thinking as in productivity and a sense of urgency and objectivity and control. Like all Mm -hmm. of those are part of white supremacy culture. And so I think what happens though, is that um, for some people that comes really easily to them and for other people, it creates stress Mm -hmm. and depression and anxiety and shame. And so like my version of anti-racism is that we're all impacted by it, right? And so to the extent that we can help people start to change the culture and that then I think we can promote healing in all individuals regardless of their identity. Mm-hmm. Well, one thing I've learned and thought a lot about recently is just um, leaving things to assumption is incredibly dangerous and problematic, right? Even therapists who just assume that clients assume that we are safe Mm. for any identifier, right? Right. Um, Whether it's their faith, their sexuality, um, again, racial or uh, ethnic uh, background or identities. Um, I think especially right now in the state of our country, people are wondering, where do you stand? People are wondering, um, uh, yeah, where do you stand with these issues, right? And so if it's not explicit, then people will make assumptions. 
And in reality, clients will make assumptions before they even uh, are there sitting on the couch with you and giving you the opportunity to, right, take a stance on it. Right. And I think, I think about, uh, at least when I was growing up, that colorblindness was seen as like the preferred value, right? And that, yeah, that made you not, that made you not racist, yeah. right? Um, and yet, like on some level, I get it, right? That, you know, we're saying like, we're all part of the human race. We're all the same. Yeah. We all bleed the same, right? Mm-hmm. And it doesn't take into the account that the world reacts differently to me as a black yeah. cis woman that they do to you as a white cis man, right? And yeah. so, and we're gendered all the time, like in seconds we're gendered, right? Yeah. And so- I think like, how do we hold both of those truths that like yeah. we're all the same and yet we're not all the same because the world treats us differently. And so I yeah. think about, um, so I think what's problematic, I think in terms of a lot of ra- racial discussions is that um, white people tend to see themselves as individuals, right? And so, um, and yet a lot of people of color are seen as part of a group. And so I think what happens, mm-hmm. right, if you're not being explicit about where you stand, is that the assumption is going to be based on factors that you yeah. don't even you don't even think about. So I'm going to assume that someone um, is going to be against me than for me in general, yeah. right? That's our negativity yeah. bias. It's safer to assume the worst than to assume like I can take a risk with this person. Yeah. And if I'm if I'm used to moving around spaces in a way. Um, that protects, let's say, white people or protects me, right? So maybe I don't show my full self in predominantly white spaces. Yeah. And why would I take that off in the therapy room? Yeah. Right. It would be really hard to do that. Of course. <laughs> uh, some uh, experience I had recently in um, uh, kind of confronting a, a, a very white organization around this stuff, um, their response was basically, well, we're not, um, um, we're not, um, like uninviting black people. <laughs> We're not telling them they can't come. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Um, which I think is an extremely problematic stance, right? right. It's, it would be, um, yeah, it just seems obvious that that's, that that's problematic, right? And that's also a very passive stance of like, yeah, we're not, it's kind of like we're not doing any harm. We're not saying that people of color can't, you know, join our organization, right? Or can't um, become our clients or whatever. But everything we're doing is like extremely white, extremely homogenous. Um, and that in itself is, is a problem. Right. And it doesn't take into account that even if that one individual right, is very open to a variety of people joining, right, that that 400 years has said that there have been a lot of white-only spaces, that even when the doors were open, there were a lot of messaging that said you weren't welcome. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm wondering, so um, uh, another thing to talk about is obviously, uh, and, and I think this is a tremendous limitation in my own training, was um, very indoctrinated in theory, uh, you know, approaches to psychotherapy that are just rooted in um, old white men seeing white clients of privilege <laughs> in mm-hmm. a comfy office in Palo Alto, California. Um, and, uh, um, and that's where a lot of these case studies are coming from. Things like urban yalom, psychodynamic, cognitive behavioral therapy, um, right with Aaron Beck. I mean, again, these are like you know, big, big names and people that a lot of us kind of look up to and follow. And then you look deeper into the way that they conceptualize clients, right? Or even the way that my program was highly, highly focused on the individual, but never really the individual in context of their life, their environment, safety, access to resources, food, you know, um, yeah, the effects of discrimination on mental health, the effects of, again, community safety, things like that. Um, so what, what are your thoughts on that? And maybe also more practically, how do you work around this, this sort of stuff with your clinicians as they're conceptualizing clients in the private, in your private practice? Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's so hard. Um, I think about how so much of that is white centered. And so if, if the standard is whiteness, right, then it becomes, how do we, how do we start to say like, what's pathology? Like what's, what's problematic? Yeah. And, and I think also as a therapist, we have so much power in terms of, are we trying to teach clients how to deal with an oppressive system 
or are we trying to dismantle the oppressive system? And it's mm -hmm. kind of like, which one can, which one do we have control over and which mm -hmm. one takes much more time? But I think if we're all trying to help clients assimilate to a white centered system, then I think we miss out on all the authenticity and richness and culture of all these other populations. And yeah. so this idea of community, of this idea of culture, this idea of emotions yeah. and different ways of expressing it or dressing. Um, it's so interesting that I think of even things around time, right? That um, like time is, is also a very Eurocentric kind of concept mm -hmm. in terms of being on time, right? And yeah. there's uh, even jokes that happen around like colored people time, right? And so, but it, it makes it appear as though one is the standard and the other one is problematic. Yeah. And so how do we like everywhere, everything that we think about is all based on that. So yeah. it becomes really hard to start to challenge it. So I think having, having supervision or consultation or groups that really help you start to unpack all the ways we've been conditioned, because I think about that white centered, which isn't just whiteness, right? It's also, I think about like neurodiversity, right? Like mm -hmm. if I, if my, if my brain works in that neurotypical way, right, then life is easier for me. But if my brain yeah. is um, maybe more ADD or like I'm more of a sensory person than like a verbal or written word person, the world is harder for me and the world isn't built for me. And so I think about all the ways in which the world isn't built for certain people and how that causes pain and stress and shame and suicidality. Mm -hmm. And so like the more that we can start to broaden, right? So that we're targeting the most vulnerable populations, right? Who are the most um, marginalized, the more we can enrich our society, mm -hmm. right? And so um, I always think about like who's on, whose stories aren't being told, whose stories aren't being centered. Mm -hmm. And um and it takes a lot more effort to do that because mm -hmm. mainstream, you know, you open a book, it's going to teach you a certain thing. Um, and it's so much harder to learn about all these other ways of being and thinking. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned to our group, you know, even the, um, uh, the, the phrasing that people use around the murder of George Floyd uh, matters and is significant and is, um, you know, if you're looking for these subtleties is an indicator of could potentially something more problematic. Right. Um, right. What, what's your, um, do you, do you invite these conversations in your practice, right. Or talking about um, uh, what's happening in our country. Also, how do you handle um, things such as um, justice, equality, um, police brutality, things like that in, in the line to where it gets political, I guess, or if you have people in the practice that maybe have different political views. When you say in the practice, you mean like clients? Um, with, with your clinicians, sorry. Clinicians. Um, or with um, your clients. That's certainly a, right, yeah, an it, even it, more it interesting come question. Up, yeah, it could come either way. Um, uh, it's interesting in terms of clinicians. So far, it hasn't really come up. Um, I think probably because I've been so transparent about Kind of where I stand in terms of anti-racism work. And mm -hmm. so even the series and workshops I offer, I offer it for free for my mm -hmm. clinicians because I want them to deepen their understanding in these areas. So it's so I haven't really experienced it something, mm -hmm. but also I invite in like free dialogue about this stuff, right? Like mm -hmm. they don't have to agree with me. Mm -hmm. I want them to start to critically think for themselves and explore their own privilege and their own ways of doing things so that they can I want, I mean, my, my definition of like the true diversity is that people's full selves are able to enter into the room. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't have to be like that. I like everything about you, but the fact that yeah. you feel safe enough to be able to bring your full self into the space. What if a client uh, says something racist in a session? Um, I think it depends what it is. So mm -hmm. I, I mean, I rarely experience overt racism in terms of clients. It's going to be much more subtle. Mm -hmm. So um, like I once had a client who um, I, I, it was a white cis female client and older. And I remember like there seems something off in our relationship 
um, like we were working together, but it felt hard. And at some point, um, you know, we, we mutually agreed um, that she, that we weren't going to continue to work together because it, mm-hmm. it, it, I felt like she needed much more validation than I could provide. And, and that opened the door for her to talk about that uh, she experiences black women as um, intimidating, um, which, which made all the sense in the world because often the feedback I got from her was a sense of um, maybe I was a little too direct or I was a little too intense. And I thought something is this like coded language yeah. for something, but I don't exactly know what it is. And so, and she would make like little comments like uh, about the location of my office, like coming into the building, uh, she would have a reaction to it, but that when she entered my space, it was so calm. But like, to me, that was coded language for, um, she was used to being in Princeton or somewhere else. Right. And so, yeah. And so, but she wasn't, she was never going to say that. Right. Most people are not going to say a lot of those things, but they're going to say it in much more subtle ways. Um, and so she was a person who like, it just felt like I wasn't going to be able to be the one to help her. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I felt like if it would have been another client, I would have had a more open conversation with them about it. Yeah. Right. And so I think sometimes right. it's like the clinician determining when is yeah. it not a good stylistic yeah. experience and when is it um, sure. that we could do some really meaningful work around here because I'm sure she has other colleagues who are black identifying who maybe she has. Yeah tensions with yeah yeah it's it's either um you know potentially not a good fit or potentially the 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 perfect fit or the perfect opportunity for some sort of corrective emotional experience right 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 with that being said um how do you tease apart let's say racism from projection or countertransference, right? In that case, right? Uh, it's like you basically um, kind of represent something to her that's been difficult historically. Uh-huh. Um, we would call that transference, right? Or, or uh-huh. in that model of kind of psychoanalysis, right. psychodynamics, we call that transference. But how do you tease apart those two, right? Um, yeah. Well, it's, in, it's interesting for me because I guess for me, like I think of um, we're all, we all have racist ideas, Mm-hmm. on some level, because that's the foundation of the United States. And so so my spectrum of racism is much broader. So I know that when people think of racism, they think of this binary system of you're racist or you're not racist. And if yeah. you're racist, you're bad. So I don't think of it in that way. So because I know I have racist ideas that I've had to really work hard to undo that have been internalized. So, so I guess I think I, as a person of color, I see almost everything through the lens of race. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, and part of that is just, I can't not do that mm-hmm. in order to survive. And so for me, transference, countertransference, there's always an element of race in there. There's always an element of gender, of class, mm-hmm. um, ableism, all of that is always woven in. So it's more about asking the question is how is race showing up in the room? Mm-hmm. Right? Like what's, what's named, what's not named, how is it impacting, you know, the life experiences I've had and the training I've had and where the client is coming from? To me, it's just another question that I'm just asking myself. Yeah. So uh, we've, yeah, we've covered a lot of ground here. Um, One thing I've, I've thought about and I think about quite a bit is um, uh, I live in San Francisco again, and um, it's a, it's by, by the numbers of, a very diverse place here, especially uh, the East Bay as well, Oakland, um, where I have uh, a number of clients. There's, it has certainly come up before around what does it mean for someone like me to go to therapy at all or to talk about my problems, right? Or again, to be uh, a person of color going to a white dude, you know, to work on my problems or talk about my anxiety. Um, I've also had, you know, a, a number of clients who, um, because of religious reasons, they're very secretive about coming to see me. They're very ashamed of coming to see me. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering, you know, how you think about those things in terms of like what a, what a client's culture says um, or what they've grown up kind of knowing about what it means to seek help. What does it say about me to seek help or especially to seek help again from a, a white dude like me? Right. Yeah. I mean, I think there's so much room for validation, right? To talk about the larger systems and structures. 
um, that kind of make it that, you know, therapy is seen as someone who's, um, who tends to go as someone who's white, right, and of a particular class and education, and, and yet, um, and yet this person must be suffering, right, and so, um, and what an opportunity and courageous for them to decide that they want to reduce their pain and suffering by doing this, and that um, I, I think as a clinician, like, um, that they shouldn't trust me until it's been earned, right? Until I've shown that that I am someone trustworthy, right? And that um, I guess I feel like part of therapy is helping people trust their gut and mm-hmm. helping people like be able to find the truth within them, right? That I'm I'm only guiding, facilitating the process for them. And so I have a certain knowledge base, but also there are many times where I need to seek consultation because I don't have enough knowledge of the particular area that they're talking about. Mm-hmm. And I want um, to be clear about that and honest with them about that and humble yeah. about that. Yeah. I'm wondering in, in terms of um, working with, with clients, well, here's an example. So um, uh, years ago when I just started this practice was a solo practitioner, uh, someone called me one day and they said, um, yeah, you're John Clerk, right? You're the guy that specializes in um, uh, polyamory and open relationships. <laughs> and I wasn't that guy. <laughs> I had worked with one client that was in an open huh. relationship. And the way I approached it, you know, she basically, she was kind of testing me out early on and saying, hey, I'm, um, we've been working together for a while, but hey, by the way, I'm thinking about, you know, having multiple partners. What do you think about that? And of course, I'm like, well, what do you think about that? What appeals to you about that, right? Mm-hmm. What's, what, what might that be like for you? Um, she uh, went on to kind of, um, uh, um, you know, kind of immerse herself in that world. And through that and through that experience taught me a lot about the terminology, what to say, the issues that come up. She gave me book recommendations, right? Mm -hmm. Um, She was kind of teaching me how to work with people in open relationships. And then someone calls and says, you're you're that guy, right? And I'm like, well, I didn't mean to be that guy, but I feel ready enough to work with you around this stuff. Mm -hmm. My question is, so to to what degree do you, um, like I clearly benefited from the client's experiences, right? And from her coming in and me just being open to go, I don't know anything about this, teach me about it. I want to learn right. about you and your world and what interests you. And then I was doing some work on the side. But again, I also don't want to put it on her to, hey, teach me how to, you know, uh, work with this group that is not the majority group. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's it's such a tricky dance. It's definitely a dance, I think, that, mm. you know, that there's some clients who uh, that's probably part of their healing process is, is to, yeah. to share in that way. And for others, it would appear burdensome. Right. And so. I think it sounds like you had a good sense, right? That 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 it that wasn't burdensome to that client, and so uh, it sounds like you both really benefited from it. And yeah. so I I think about, but it also sounds like you were willing to do a lot of the work to like get up to speed and to really identify it, and you were able to hold the space, right? Mm-hmm. I think so much of this is about being able to hold the space, right? To kind of like I look at myself, like I know where my edges are, where my bias is, yeah, and th- and then I have to like know like how to compensate for that or to be clear like I'm going to do more harm than good and so I think we just always have to do that because because I think sometimes that works and then sometimes that doesn't and then I I think also when we bring in things like race I think race is such a emotionally uh, hot topic right that's so complicated that um I think if that's a blind spot for someone, then we could be doing microaggressions without recognizing it. And mm-hmm. then um, that could be problematic if, especially if like to your point earlier, right. That might discourage someone from coming back to therapy because they might generalize that, you know, all therapists are kind of like this. And so yeah. it's not, it's not for people like me. Yeah, for sure. What, what's on, unco- well, there's a lot that's uncomfortable about doing this work, right? And part of what's mm-hmm. uncomfortable is that it's never done. Yeah. Um, I think some therapists, I even know therapists in the city who like 
did all the CBT trainings at the Beck Institute and like got, you know, all these certifications and got really comfy. It's like, that's just me. I finished my training, right? Almost mm-hmm. like I'm, I'm competent or, you right. know, it's that doing it for seven years or however many hours it takes, you know, according to research to become an expert. But what's really uncomfortable about this is right. The work is never done. Our internal right. work is never done. Right? right. I'm constantly finding new blind spots. Right. Um, and I could always be doing more. Uh, I was, um, someone recently once told me on, on an episode uh, on the show that basically, especially for me as a white man with basically all the privileges, um, it's it's appropriate that I should never feel like I can rest or that I can <laughs> have done enough because I'll, hmm. I'll never do enough. Right. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I have, there's one microaggression I want to ask you about. <laughs> and I, sure. um, at the risk of, of sounding um, naive, I'll just I'll just go for it. Um, the microaggression is asking people, where are you from? Mm. Right. Or when people have a slight accent or look like they're not from here, whatever it might be, where are you from? Right. That's by the books, uh, a microaggression, right? Right. Yeah. I think so because, because you're, it becomes, why are you asking the question? Like, is that a standard question you ask everybody? Maybe. Right. Um, but also I think that, um, Often when, when I do my anti-racism training, I say that people need to look at what their social location is and, and in comparison right. to the person they're speaking with, right? right? So if I, if I was a white person speaking to a, a person of color, I would want to keep that in mind whenever we're having a dialogue. And I would want to know, this is where like having some knowledge is helpful, is that that question is often associated with a sense of you don't belong here. Right. Or like you're not, you know, you're not clearly white. And so, um, so even if I mean no harm, like I'm just genuinely curious as a white person, I should know the history of that question and hence perhaps not ask it or to, or to be more explicit about what I'm actually asking. Or why you're asking. Yeah. And I I think that's what's challenging is to think of yourself as part of a group. Yeah. Versus then you as just an individual who's curious. Yeah. I, I struggle with this one um, in part because I, uh, I really love learning about other cultures. I love language. I love learning languages. Um, so when I hear an accent, I selfishly want to know if my, if my intuition was right as to where they're from or where they're born mm-hmm. or what their native language is. And also... Um, if I can, uh, so I speak Spanish and French, if I can switch to Spanish or French and speak mm-hmm. their language and, uh, um, and, and kind of immerse in their culture in that moment, that's something I want to do. Um, again, I see how that can be problematic, especially in context. At the same time, um, you know, when I was uh, uh, living in France, people would hear my American accent in French and they would ask me every day, where are you from? Right. Sure. Or they would just say you're American, right? Because they could understand mm-hmm. my accent. Um, that and there's there's people all over Europe um, from different countries that are very, you know, central, very close to one another. So it seemed like a question that was asked all the time because mm-hmm. uh, there's a lot of different, uh, there's a lot of people speaking English, but with different accents that might be harder to recognize. Right. And so it felt more okay there. It didn't feel like right. a faux pas, you know? Right, yeah. Yeah, and I think that I think that context matters, right? So that probably in France, right, that there's there's a different history there, right? Mm-hmm. And so and so you being um, like American soundings mm-hmm. is it's different, right, than here. And I would say even here, um, like I loved when you were talking about that you love languages, right? So it would almost be like, why not lead with that? Like I love languages and. Um, mm-hmm. and I, I can't quite place that accent and, you know, and yeah. part of me is just curious because I would love to know if I could talk to you in this other language and, mm-hmm. you know, and so like that, that sounds so different than where are you from? Where are you from? Yeah. Right. Cause, cause you've put yourself out there. There's a vulnerability there that mm-hmm. you've put out there, which mm-hmm. sounds so different. The other possibility is that they say I'm from here. I'm from the same place as you. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know? And then, yeah. right. And I think what's problematic is that people usually then ask a follow-up question when they say they're from here versus people just saying, Oh, okay. Yeah. Like I just was, couldn't quite p- place that, that accent. Yeah. 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 It's, it's interesting. Um, so, well, we've got just a couple minutes left here and 
I'm, I'm thinking for, for therapists listening, they're probably wondering, number one, how do I start this work in my practice or continue this work in my practice? So maybe just a couple things you feel like they could do after today um, in their practice. Um, and then of course, number two, I'd love for you to share a bit more about how you actually work with therapists and practice owners, um, uh, solo and group practice owners, I imagine, to, to, to do this work um, in their businesses. Sure. Um, I think first thing is, um, I always think about like a lot of transformation comes from doing our own internal work. So whether for you, that's um, listening to podcasts, reading books, watching documentaries, being involved in book clubs and and group supervision, that any place that's going to allow you to like, to explore your blind spots, to go to that edge, right? That's a safe place for you to do that. Um, so I know I've acquired a lot of resources over the years. So I, I've created an anti-racism resource page on my website, both my group practice website and my personal website. So um, on drnatedmond.com, there's a whole anti-racism resource page, which has videos I've done and has a bunch of other places people can go. I just wanted to create a hub. Um, and it, it's interesting. It was my way of kind of grieving for um, uh George Floyd was to create these resources for other people out there. Um, the other thing I think is um, we're living in a time where there's so much information out mm-hmm. there. So there's so many different ways that I think people can plug in to their level of um, time that they have available. I do a lot of, I offer a lot of different things myself, but I know, I know so many colleagues who are doing things, but I have, I offer, um, anti-racism series. So it's like three parts, small group, like 15 to 20 people of, you know, across the country, different fields. And we just get together to talk about things. So I'll do like a little didactic about kind of, you know, some common terms that are being talked about these days. Like what is a microaggression? What's white supremacy? What's institutional racism? What is, what is the Black Lives Matter movement? Um, what's white supremacy culture. So I do a lot of that stuff. And so we do a lot of discussion so people can really start to dive deeper into the ways in which they've been conditioned. And I may, I do it from this mindful, compassionate place. Like there's no need for shame, right? Mm-hmm. We don't know what we don't know. And once we do, what are we going to do about it? And, and people who want to become allies or accomplices, however you like to use the mm-hmm. word, um, like there's a path for that. There's so many different ways to plug in. Um, and then mm-hmm. I do also... I think of racial, just real quick, the approach matters so much because people don't change behaviors from shame. Like there's a reason why you don't see ads anymore for like, uh, or a lot of ads like billboards saying quit smoking or smoking kills you. People don't, that that doesn't motivate them in the right way. If they already decided, I, Hey, I think I want to look at my smoking habit and you come into that conversation with a gentle approach with mindfulness with curiosity, right? It just, it just makes a lot of sense. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to model for them that if you're going to go talk to family members or colleagues, or you're going to try to make some changes in whatever business industry you're in, that we need to find compassion. We need to do our own work and see, mm-hmm. you know, where's our anger, where's our rage, where's our sadness. Um, and we need to own that for ourselves if we're going to heal, because this polarizing thing that's happening it's, it's not really going to solve issues in the long run. And so we need to find ways to bridge and come together. Um, and so I think that's a skill that a lot of us don't, don't develop. Yeah. How to deal with conflict in healthy ways. Yeah. Sure. Um, then the other work that I do is, um, you know, I do supervision around cases uh, for people who want to take more of a multicultural anti-racist mm-hmm. lens to a lot of information. Um, And then also I do a lot of trainings for group practices Mm -hmm. who want to deepen this on their teams and really create a a culture or paradigm shift. Because I really think that that's what that is, that if we only like plug in, it it becomes more performative and it's not really deep and it won't really last. And and the people that you might be trying to include, um, maybe hiring more BIPOC clinicians or, or broadening the client population, that they're not going to they're not going to see it as genuine because uh, it doesn't have the roots there. Yeah. The key is to get started, right, with with mm-hmm. where you are. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. And to move past for some therapists and for white people like me, our guilt, you know, move past mm-hmm. our white guilt of, um, hey, well, I feel like I'm late to the game, or I feel like I'm a therapist, so I should already know this stuff, right? I think there's a lot of that. 
Um, Mm -hmm. But even equipping people with the language to start talking about race is a huge step in creating that environment for them to, to say what comes to mind, I think is, is huge. And then they get more comfortable um, and can start adding on to that work from there. Um, but just getting started, you know, I saw a lot of therapists um, uh, uh, over the past few months, really, who have kind of said, I don't know what to say. I'm afraid of saying the wrong thing uh, about the Black Lives Matter movement, about George Floyd. So I'm not going to say anything. And I think right. that's the wrong approach, right? Yeah. And I, and I think in many ways that's equally problematic, right? Yeah. Because, you know, I've, I've seen a decent amount of posters that says, you know, silence is violence, right? And, and thinking about historically how often it was people saying nothing that allowed the bigger crimes to occur. Yeah. And, so, and so if we can reduce, if we can build skills so people feel like they're equipped to say something and to sit in that discomfort, then I think change really does. There's a lot of momentum that's built from, from the ground up. Yeah, people assume if I'm saying nothing, at least I'm not perpetuating a certain problem. Um, but again, especially I think for people, um, people with privilege, people uh, uh, myself included, it's uh, we are doubly obligated um, to, to to say something or to try and to make it a sustaining effort, not a let me post to Instagram once to my friends and family, <laughs> you know, right. about Black Lives Matter and that's it. I think right. that's the other risk too that I've I that, that, that kind of bothers me in this is people that want to just basically kind of virtue signaling right of like hey by the way I'm I'm anti-racist but then I'm going to be back to my usual business for the rest of the year right um, yeah, yeah. Now, and I think having amazing. that support system I just think having that support system makes it easy to keep going right yeah. if you're doing it in in isolation it's like anything right if you're trying to lose weight but you're doing it by yourself with no support system then it's going to peter out usually. We forget our basic skills as therapists around this Yeah, stuff. for sure. There's something paralyzing about this, for sure. Yeah, we forget what we know about behavior change and how people transform and where beliefs mm-hmm. come from, right? Or creating conditions for people to change. Right, and that it takes time. Yeah. Now, this has been great. Um, so for people that want to get in touch with you about doing some training in their practice, drnatedmond.com, right? Yes. Yep, we'll put a exactly. link to that in the description, of course, as well as a link to um, your private practice um, if people want to check that out. And thanks again for doing this. It means yeah. a lot to me and um, it was a lot of fun. We'd love to have you back sometime. Thanks, John. I appreciate it. Thanks. Take care. There you have it, folks. Hope you enjoyed the episode. As always, uh, if you did, share your favorite episode with a few therapist friends. Help us grow the show. Like I mentioned, if you're at all interested in joining either of our programs, head to privatepracticeworkshop.com to learn more and get started now. I'd love for you to uh, join me and I'd love to help you grow your business. Um, There you have it. Thanks again for being here this week. Take care of yourselves. Keep doing great work out there in the world. And I'll see you real soon. Take care. Bye-bye.